And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful community sponsors from coast to coast. Uh, we have a action-packed show uh, today, so uh, action-packed both in the sense that it is action-packed, but also in the sense that it is packed, Stefan, oh. uh, because we have a two... Uh, uh, two interviews uh, that we're doing and both of which are long. So I'm actually going to skim through and go directly to our first interview in just a second so we can get the ball rolling here. Uh, but for context, as far as the interview coming up in the middle of the show, we'll be speaking to a friend of mine that I actually met at the Beyond Green Conference, mm-hmm. which I was at because of you, Stefan. Right. Uh, that was right when we started working together, actually, yeah. if I remember correctly, um, which was Max Kogue. And I, I bumped into him at the conference. Uh, he's a professional geoscientist. Um, and he has since gone to BC, but he was telling me at the time about this interesting story about his background as a geologist. Um, he, as many geolo- trained geologists do, especially if you live in Toronto, ended up working uh, with uh, in relation to mining companies and that sort of stuff because um, that's where the work is. Uh, he since uh, has become, I think he would be okay with me calling it somewhat disillusioned uh, mm-hmm. with that industry and is now working on much more interesting things. So we'll be speaking to Max Kogue, uh, both. He's been in BC working uh, on uh, the Trans Mountain issue. He's been working in the Burnaby region uh, helping First Nations uh, understand some of the applications uh, and the science, the really the really thick stuff um, that's in there um, that is frequently used to actually sort of prevent people from objecting to stuff just because it's using language that's almost impenetrable. Um, so Max has a really interesting story that he's going to tell us about that. He's also joining us uh, to speak about a uh, f- campaign that he's just started, an Indiegogo campaign, uh, which is Rybox, uh, which is a... Um, planting boxes for growing food uh, designed for cities and balconies and condos and stuff like that to try and help people grow some of their own food in in situations where they may not have access to a normal uh, garden. So Max has two of those uh, projects on the go. We'll be speaking to him somewhere in the middle of the show. But without further ado, we're going to go to our first interview, which is our um, occasional uh, correspondent, Christina Henke, who has been producing some excellent uh, interviews for us over the past few months. She brings us today an interview with someone who's been called one of the most interesting, challenging, and original thinkers on the psychology of our collective uh, of our collective climate change denial. We're going to go immediately to that interview right now. So we'll be back in just a few minutes. Here's Kristina Henko's interview. Take it away. Nearly all climatologists agree that climate change is real and caused by humans. Recently, scientists from NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration described 2014 as the warmest year on record. They also said that the last 10 years were the hottest overall. Based on their analysis of high-tech measurements of warming ocean temperatures, rising sea levels, and extreme weather events, we seem to have ample scientific proof of climate change. Why, then, is this apparent threat to our planet's livability not dealt with in the strongest way possible? Why is the climate change crisis being ignored? Or worse, why is there active denial around the issue? That's exactly what British climate change communicator George Marshall wanted to know. He set out to get answers from leading psychologists, climate scientists, environmentalists, American Tea Party activists, and yes, full-blown climate change deniers. The result is a fascinating new book called Don't Even Think About It. Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. I reached him at his office in England not long ago. Now, why, why is climate change so important? It's such a, it's such a huge question, and I'm, I'm just wondering quite how to come at it, because climate change is, is massive. 
and every attempt to say this is what it is somehow defines it in a way that limits the way you come to think of it. But there are individual components of what it means, any single one of which would make it extremely actionable. You know, you can pick any single part of it. You could take the, the impact it's going to have on the people of sub-Saharan Africa. You could have the impact it's going to have on the landscape I see outside my window here. You know, you could think about the effect it's going to have, I don't know, on Venice or Florida going underwater or, you know, the Midwest having potential collapse of grain production if we keep pushing ahead on it. I mean, there are all of these individual impacts and you could pick them out and you could say, well, any single one of those could, in my view, be enough to say that this is horrific. For me, though, the motivation is something bigger, which is this sense of the utter destructive stupidity of what's going on here. It's this idea of a of a sacred value that there is a point and there is a line beyond which we should not go and we have gone so far beyond it and we keep going further and further and further that the right, the fundamental right to pass on to all future humans the world that I've inherited feels to me non-negotiable. But that's my motivation. You know, different people can find different things. I think it's very important with climate change that we don't say this is what climate change is and this is why you should take an action on it without realizing that how people might come to terms with it or what might mobilize it might be very, very different for different people. Part of a problem with it, which I talk about in the book, is that because environmentalists have said climate change is this kind of problem, this is why we need to do something, they've picked out and shaped it entirely in terms of what they think is important, like, I don't know, species loss or, you know, or polar bears. Polar bears are irrelevant to most people. Or maybe some social issues. And of course the thing is, well, that's maybe what motivates them, but that is not climate change. That's one aspect of this problem that they happen to, they happen to pick out. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting that amongst the people who really get climate change are military strategists. And they're not looking at any of that stuff. What they're looking at is the potential for climate change to generate future conflict. Mm-hmm. That for them is the, is the single thing that moves it absolutely to the top of the league of emerging threats is that this is, has the real potential to produce enormous conflict, particularly in the Middle East. Why especially in the Middle East? Because of water struggles. Because the Middle East has water limitations, has severe water issues, and there's, there's already fights and struggles going on over water which crosses boundaries, which crosses between countries. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I realized that the military security apparatus was actually concerned with this, and there was a report um, that had come out on this, that made it very real for me. And I just feel like it's so strange. It seems like climate change is a very well-kept secret. So I, I find it very, very strange. And I guess that's why you wrote the book, to try to understand. And I think the thing you're describing there leads to some very interesting questions. Like, why Why does it feel like that? Uh, because I agree. I think it does feel like that to many people. Now, I guess what I'm doing with the book is I'm trying to say, actually, this is a very, very interesting question. Let's explore it. Now, one of the reasons it feels like a secret is that people don't talk about it. I mean, I know this myself as somebody who's speaking all the time with strangers about climate change. I actually have a... I had a resolution after writing the book. I would try and have one conversation with climate change about climate change with a stranger every day. And he just mentioned it, and very rarely does anybody ever want to talk about it or pick up on it. But you think, okay, okay, at least I've dropped it there, and at least it's sitting there. Mm-hmm. So there is that sense of 
Well, why is no one talking about it? Well, of course, part of the reason is people don't want to. And it's because you know, it's too unbelievable and a problem. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah, it's too it's too unbelievable. It's too weird. It's something that people don't feel that they know enough about to talk about. But there's something else as well, which is that people aren't actively trying to find out anything about it in order to understand it better either. You know, one of the kind of weird things that people say is they say, they say, why aren't they telling us the truth? You know, well, it's not very hard to find out what's going on. I mean, in the in the internet age, you can find out a good deal about climate change within, what, 10 seconds? I mean, how hard is it to access information on this crisis? Not very hard at all. I think people are very, very deliberately avoiding finding out about it. So you focused a lot on the psychology of why people are in denial. But I'm wondering the extent to which the uh, disinformation campaign plays a role in people just not engaging with this issue. Well, first of all, the disinformation campaign, the anti-climate change campaign, has been very, very intelligent, well-run, well-orchestrated. As somebody who works professionally on communications, I'd say, sometimes very clever communications. It was interesting for me writing the book to have a chance to meet some of the key people behind it, just sitting down and saying, great, guys, tell me, how do you do what you do? And some of the stuff you've done, this is fascinating. I was surprised anyone would even talk to you and share their strategies. Oh, we all love to, we all love to be flattered, don't we? Um, but this disinformation has been effective because it has some very smart people behind it, it's had some good resources. It's had some good funding. This is not sitting in a void. It's stuff where there's plenty of money has been flowing, as we know, from libertarian philanthropists and oil companies and lots of things have been running into this campaign. We know that there's also biased media which either likes to report climate change denial or that they um, completely beholden to a kind of model of journalism that involves having different points, you know, having a debate format in which Typically, you'll have a scientist up against some professional skeptic pundit, and they'll, they'll have it out. We know all of that is happening. We also, however, have to ask why it is that this is effective. It's not just simply a matter of it being there. What makes something effective is that it speaks to people's values, and it says to them what they really want to hear. I think part of what's happened is that the climate change deniers have managed to very effectively speak to the values of conservatives, of people on the right. And we've seen a polarization which has built very much up since it really starts to kick in around 2007, 2008, which has seen the people who oppose action on climate change really moving into that political space of conservatives, speaking to their values. And when you look at what they're saying, it's not so much even about climate science anymore. It's about core issues of freedom and opportunity and enterprise and tax and all of these issues. And we've seen a greater polarization too with people on my side, on the environmental side, being completely locked into our liberal left point of view on it, that we could only see it from our, our perspective. Well, when we do that, of course, what we do is we open up that space of large, large numbers of people in the general population saying, well, we don't like you. We're not going to talk to you. We'll let those other guys talk to you. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, what the climate change denies do very, very effectively. Of course, they also have it easy, too, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to construct stories and campaigns out of the information. We select and we play just as anybody would, but we're dealing with the core science. We're trying to take what the scientists are telling us and turn it into something. Whereas what the 
the lawyers are trying to do is they're starting with the values of their audience. They're thinking, what are the values of our audience and what do they care about? And then they're just cherry-picking the information to fit. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot, lot easier if you basically have the story and really look for the things to fill it, then you have this complex, contradictory, uncertain information and you try and construct something out of that. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, that's why they often tell a much more um, coherent and appealing story. Mm-hmm. Because they're not bound by by the uh, restrictions of whether they have to tell the truth or not. I, I can't help, I have to ask you this, why is there this silence in the mainstream media on this topic? Because what we always learn in journalism is that if it's in the public conversation, then we'll do a story on it. But of course, if the media do stories on it, then it enters the public conversation. So yeah. what what is the reason that the media, the mainstream media, that is, have just silenced it? I mean, how do you explain that? People who professionally study the media, which I don't, will always have a, a number of different kind of models for what makes editorial policy. And I think they're all legitimate, so I think that it's a bunch of things which happen together. I think the other thing which is important is that there are feedbacks which happen there, so things amplify the effects of other things. So you know, obviously one of the things is that there are proprietorial editorial decisions, like that the proprietors and media outlets have their own politics that they choose to play which is a very powerful consideration. I mean, here in Britain, two of the leading right-wing media, the uh, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express, are both run by press barons who have very, very strong climate change sceptic tendencies. And so, not surprisingly, the instruction goes out that this is the line that they'll take, and then uh, the newspaper becomes a voice piece for that. I think they're also newspapers take their definition of issues from usually from some very, very current, topical, and particularly political issues. So this is where you get one of these feedbacks, which is that the newspapers don't really talk about it because the politicians aren't talking about it. And then the politicians aren't really talking about it because the people aren't talking about it, or the newspapers aren't talking about it. And so it goes round and round. So I think the final consideration is they struggle with this the same way that we all do. We deal very well with threats and I talk a lot about narrative because we are constructed to make sense of the world through the medium of stories. We're constructed to respond to narratives that have very salient qualities. It's here, it's now, and it's got a recognizable enemy, maybe an enemy which is a familiar enemy to us, the kind of person we can imagine would do us harm, and that we can see they have the intention to cause us harm. These are these are powerful. These things gather our attention. You know, if Islamic State is out in Iraq and they're beheading people and they're putting those videos up on YouTube. That's a powerful story. That's utterly compelling to everybody. And the media is dominated by these issues of what's here and now and what's salient. With climate change, well, it just kind of, it just crawls along, doesn't it? And, and they say, well, we, we ran that story. Have you got anything new to say? And I go, well, there's a new report that's come out that says it's even worse. And they go, well, yeah, that's not news, is it? So climate change presumably is slow and it's in the future. However, you also make a point in your book that when we do have a natural uh, disaster like flooding or hurricane on a grand scale, the people you interviewed about that wouldn't blame climate change as a rule. It was always assumed by scientists and campaigners that 
although we knew climate change was a problem, it didn't really have what they would call salience. It's not a very clear and tangible thing, but as the impacts build, it'll become more and more real to people. And that isn't really how human psychology works. And I think that's why I tried to write the book, was to explain that unless we understand how our brains really work, we can't understand how we're making sense of climate change. So, of course, in theory, there's a cause and an effect. And you could say, well, as as the weather gets worse, people will, will see those impacts and it will start to become more real to them. But, of course, that only works if, if they already, in their mind, have a mental map of the connection between climate change and events. Most people don't talk about climate change, and quite a few people are not even sure it's happening. So why would they, if there's an extreme weather event? Why would they think that that was climate change? What's interesting when you do opinion polls after extreme weather is that actually you just see a greater polarization of existing attitudes. So people who before whatever, the flood or the heat wave or whatever, thought that climate change was real will say, well, there's the proof of it. Um, people who didn't think that it was real or happening say, well, that just goes to show that natural weather events can be extreme. <laughs> They'll refuse to get the connection. And of course, we're not getting any help from the scientists on this who are very, very wary of making connections on the basis of any individual weather event. Uh-huh. I think also, part of the reason we don't accept or don't solve that climate change is I think that there's an underlying anxiety and deep concern about it. I think so deep that actually we don't even recognize it's there. So well, what happens when we're confronted with the reality of what that might look like when we have a an extreme weather event the science tells us is not just going to be an occasional once-in-a-generation thing, but could become the norm, could be coming every year or, or like, you know, every few years again and again and again, and it will just keep getting worse. Well, not surprisingly, rather than taking that as proof of climate change, people want to go in the other direction. They want to say, well, I, having had a taste of this thing, I'm even less willing to think or talk about it. Mm-hmm. But, of course, this doesn't happen on a rational basis. This happens on a... Uh, on quite a deep down basis. Do you think that if, let's say, we had just so many floods and hurricanes and wildfires, I mean, mm. if, if the scale of all this would just get even bigger, do you think that would change people's minds about that climate change is real? I don't know. I do not know whether that is what would happen or not. I think that response, and that is why campaigning is so, so important on how we talk about it now, that response will be dependent on how we have come to think about it in the years before. Mm-hmm. So if you if we have a situation where there's a broad-based understanding of the problem and a broad-based acceptance of taking action, then when we start getting extreme weather, then, then people start saying, okay, this is really real, now we have to ramp things up and take it seriously. Of course, if that hasn't been the case when people go into all forms of ever more aberrant and extreme denial of refusing to deal with it. You know, if you dug your heels in and you said you don't think something is happening, people are amazingly resistant to changing their mind that they can see all kinds of evidence where they were right all along. And that's the nature of confirmation bias, this very, very powerful bias which leads people to collect the information that supports their existing view. So the answer is, look, I, I don't know how, how this will work. Part of the problem we have with climate change, and this is why it's a a tricky one for us, is that really to deal with it effectively requires what we anticipate some way ahead. So we're making decisions now on the basis of what will be coming down the line a generation from now. 
that means we need to be really thinking about it now. Now, the problem is that if we say that we're only going to think about it when we start seeing major climate impacts, of course, that might mean that actually dealing with the issue and trying to reduce it might be the least appealing prospect at that point. By the time that things start getting really serious, our response to it may be to say, yes, this is real, and we're going to damn well protect ourselves and look after ourselves as number one and protect our own group against uh, whatever it might be, the you know, the migrants or the other people who want our resources or, you know, secure our own food supplies or, or look after ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. It's very difficult. We need to use our imagination to anticipate what climate change might be like in order to make intelligent decisions now because if we just wait until we can see what climate change is like, it may very well be that there's not much room for manoeuvring. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Well, George, it's really been good to talk to you and uh, thank you for your time and wish you all the best okay thank you bye bye that was george marshall on the phone from england recently he's the author of the book don't even think about it why our brains are wired to ignore climate change it's published by bloomsbury usa george marshall will be visiting canada later this year to give the keynote address at the National Insurance Conference of Canada. I'm Christina Henke in Toronto. And thank you very much for that uh, excellent piece, Christina. Uh, we'll be going to our first music break here, and we're coming back to speak to Max Koog. You're listening to Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM and our wonderful community partners, Coast to Coast. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Get up, get down, get up, get down Feel it 
All right, we are back. And speaking of back, we also have Neil, who hasn't been in the studio for a few weeks. And just for fun, I'm going to introduce you as Neil Patrick Harris this week. <laughs> it's yeah. not true. Neil, tell us what we were listening to. Yeah, uh, Darren, that was Sylvan Esso, and the song was Coffee. Thank you. And uh, for for a home audience that is not uh, sitting in the studio right now, Stefan was rocking his pants off to that song. That is true. <laughs> We're going to go now to our... back on. <laughs> <laughs> no. Either an endorsement or a warning to come down and watch the show live in the Hard Hive studio. Uh, we're going to go now to our second interview. We're, we're going to be talking to Max Koog, who's speaking to us uh, uh, with regards to two different issues. But first, I would like to welcome him to the show. Max, are you there? Oh, yeah, I am. Thanks for having me, Darren. Absolutely. And, uh, my pleasure. Yeah. So uh, you're a professional geoscientist and more formally a geologist. You've uh, uh, had seven years' experience in that field working, uh, working with the natural uh, resource sector uh, in general. And I described you at the very top of the show as uh, having at some point become disillusioned uh, a little bit with it. Um, I'm actually uh, uh, changed my mind. I, I know I warned you we were going to talk about the, the Rybox thing first, but I, th- I think I'd actually like to get into the, uh, the Trans Mountain issue first. So why don't we start there uh, by just telling me as a way as an introduction for you to, to tell us your, your story there. Um, is disillusioned fair? Uh, I think it's fair, yes, um, to, to a certain degree, um, with, in the sense that um, you know, the deeper that I was working in, in some specifically mining projects and with sustainability programs, um, it just became quite apparent that, you know, at the end of the day, um, economics, in, in business, like any business, is going to be the primary driver. Um, so, with it, with that, was one issue um, in particular that had a big impact on me. And so, we're dealing with uh, pipeline projects uh, of unrefined petroleum products uh, in Alberta and um, and ending up in in BC. And you've been working with some First Nations groups. Do you want to do you want to describe um, what your work there has been? Yeah, sure. Well, I've been uh, my work has been. Um, I've been consulting uh, with an intervener um, for the Trans Mountain Extension Project since the summer. Um, most of my my work being a geologist has been related to pre-construction and construction activities related to uh, environmental impact, uh, geohazard risk, um, and soil disturbance and that kind of thing. So personally, my job is not looking at directly at the oil spills or the marine terminals, um, which is a whole other realm of, of the proposal. And so just walk us through sort of what your, um, uh, what your experience that with there have been, what some of your in- involvement uh, uh, was, and, uh, and uh, as well, you've, you've described it to me uh, off-air as well as a bit of a David and Goliath uh, uh, scenario. So maybe just, uh, maybe just give us the story. How did you get involved and, and what have you been doing and what were some of the concerns that you ended up having? Sure, yeah, well... Um, First, uh, I mean, the application that uh, Kinder Morgan has put forward is enormous, um, and there is a tremendous amount of information covering uh, an extremely wide and diverse range of, of scenarios. Um, and the most obvious issue is that in- interveners, which are individual organizations, and whether it's cities, municipal governments, First Nations, and yes, most of the organizations have some resources, but not nearly enough to tackle the whole application. And um, that's where I'm, why in most cases it really is a David versus Goliath scenario. Um, and the problem with that is that people and organizations are, are really scrambling to 
thoroughly analyze and uh, and come up with a clear analysis of, of the entire application. So although it is a public review, um, there's not a really a cohesive, integrated, and or collective review process being undertaken. Um, it's more fragmented by each individual organization. And the issue with that is that the results of the review board at the National Energy Board is, is reviewing each of these fragmented reviews um, by each individual organization. It's not comprehensive. Um, so as you could imagine, it's, it's resulting in a, a tremendous amount of resources, uh, financial time um, to tackle these issues, including taxpayers' money, um, which, you know, without a doubt, um, if this process were more streamlined, our tax dollars could be certainly allocated to this review process much more efficiently. And so, what were what is some of the um, the actual work that you've been doing for people? You you described going through some of the applications and uh, and helping people just to to be able to understand so that they can they can actually dig into this information. So, do you want to just describe a little bit what what is it actually that you're doing? What is so what is so difficult that it requires your expertise and your help to to work through? Oh, sure. Um, well, my uh, work specifically is looking at the construction of the um, pipeline. So um, that's the, the term for the, the right-of-way, where they're going to be literally digging up the ground and uh, digging a hole or blasting a hole with, with dynamite and installing the pipeline. Um, it's a fairly common procedure for building pipelines, um, but it, it, it is something, especially with respect to this particular project, it is a concern um, due to the fact that uh, Kinder Morgan is proposing to install a new pipeline immediately beside an existing um, pipeline, which has been there for 50 years. And so there's um, dynamite involved in blasting rocks and uh, reclamation of the soil and disturbance of the soil and um, geohazards risks such as landslides, floods, uh, water crossings of the pipeline, and, and all of the variables associated with each one of those um, components of construction. So it's quite uh, it's detailed. Um, Tinder Morgan has hired a lot of individual consultants to do the work for them, um, and whether that's um, geo, looking at geohazards or soil assessments and, and those sorts of things. So um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of integration by Kinder Morgan on behalf of each of their independent consultants. So they would hire consultant A to do wor- uh, work for one issue, for example, soil, and consultant B to look at geohazards. And yet there was not a cross-pollination between the independent consultants um, is one issue, is one major issue. Um, does that answer some of your questions? Yeah, yeah. And you were, I mean, you were going through and, and essentially as you were going through this uh, this problem, you were you were or, or, uh, doing this work for, for people um, and trying to sort of help them uh, through the application process and, and understand what was actually being uh, being proposed by Kinder Morgan. Um, that you, you noted there sort of one issue, which is, as you said, was that there was a lot of sort of the, uh, the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Um, but, uh, I, th- I understand that you, you started to find, uh, instead of just, n- you know, maybe bad communication, um, what was described as an, an alarming amount of errors and mistakes. Do you want to just sort of walk us through some of the things that you started to, to discover once you started digging into it? Yeah, sure. So, 
um, once you do have the opportunity and the time to, you know, to really sit down and, and pick through some of the, the reports um, and, and analyze some of the data, there, there really does tend to be a, a really alarming amount of, of errors, uh, mistakes, inferences, or, and, and omissions in the application. And whether those are um, just simple errors and typographic mistakes, um, they're overly broad and general technical legal language, there's uh, condensed scenario planning with a limited scope, so looking at kind of ideal um, scenarios, uh, and then not integrating multiple data from, from independent contractors hired by Kinder Morgan. So it's concerning because, um, yes, we as interveners were given the opportunity to review the, uh, the application and comment on the application, and yes, there are clearly improvements that need to be made um, to the application. And so the National Energy Board set up the, the process for that, um, and through uh, a series of information requests, um, and based on the responses provided by Kinder Morgan in the last round of information requests received last week, and uh, in, in February 18th, um, it's, it's really alarming to see so many new commitments uh, being made by Kinder Morgan prior to construction, um, and we're already this far along in the review process. And what's even worse with that is that due to the schedule laid out for the review process, um, and that can be found on the NEB website, uh, interveners, um, we're not going to have the opportunity to comment on that new information um, since that work, which is pretty crucial to pre-construction, is, is taking place at the same time as the hearings are getting underway this summer. Um, and that's work such as, you know, soil remediation plans, uh, environmental work related to construction, uh, acid rock drainage, geohazards, and horizontal directional drilling at water crossings. Um, so it's, it's fairly crucial work associated to the, to the project. And um, our, as interveners, we're, we're not going to have that opportunity to review and or comment on, on that work. So, Max, you're going to um, – you told me ahead of the interview that you're going to – there's a whole bunch of really technical uh, information, or not, maybe not overly technical, but there's a whole bunch of sort of technical details about uh, the work that you've been doing and some of the discoveries that, you, uh, that you've made and some of your concerns. So if, if listeners are interested in, in learning sort of more of the, the technical end of, of some of the details of Max's work, uh, you've uh, said that you're going to send me some, uh, some links to some of the documentation that you've made. Um, so for people more interested in that, you can uh, check the show post uh, after the show at greenmajority.ca. Um, but as far as what we're going to uh, continue talking about now, what I wanted to get into you was, I mean, this is obviously not the first time that you've, you've done this. You have seven years experience in this field. Um, it's something you're very familiar with, with, with this specific example of when what you've been dealing with, uh, with Kinder Morgan, uh, in BC on, on this particular project, has it, uh, in your opinion, been an anomalous amount of sort of, sort of, uh, uh, errors and mistakes and sort of, you know, you said that there's, there's you know, uh, organizational problems and that, that there doesn't seem to be a lot of communication and it's making the entire process difference. Uh, is this anomalous? Like, has this been a significant outlier for you in, in the different uh, jobs that you've been working on? Is it, does it seem like this is a particularly bad case or is this just sort of maybe like a generalized industry problem? It's definitely a generalized industry problem. Um, when you're dealing with infrastructure uh, proposals and especially energy infrastructure proposals such as this that are, are very co- uh, complex projects um, and yeah, I mean there's bound to be mistakes there's 
bound to be mistakes and um, unfortunately building the internal capacity to, and, and the internal expertise of every client project uh, companies are doing that so um, I mean Morgan hasn't been doing that Enbridge hasn't been doing that um, and instead of building that expertise internally they're relying on external consultants for for all of the work and uh, and, and I think that's a big um, issue and a big reason for a lot of a lot of the mistakes and, and errors um, in these applications so I think it's a fairly common problem I think um, probably the fact that we have set up in Canada, we have set up a re- review process such as this, is helping to uh, expose and I guess and, and bring to light and shed some light on on the challenges and and, and improvements that need to be made public more publicly than than before. So, which is a good thing. So, uh, as I said just a moment ago, we're, we're going to have uh, some links to some of uh, Max's work on uh, the show post today. So, if you're interested in, in uh, more of his uh, story and some of the more technical details about what he's been working on, you can check greenmajority.ca for the show post later. Uh, but we ju- Max, we just have a couple minutes left. So, I want to well, move on to your, your other project, which is the, the second reason we're speaking to you today, uh, which is a uh, c- uh, project you currently have on Indiegogo. You're campaigning um, for uh, the Rybox, uh, which is uh, a way for people to who maybe wouldn't normally have uh, the ability due to obviously the proliferation of people living in cities and condos and stuff uh, to be able to grow their own food. Uh, complete uh night's move uh, from what we were just talking about um so maybe that maybe the best place to to start about telling about this would would just to, to let us know how you got involved in this project yeah sure uh, uh so rybox and, and it stands for the right ingredients box is uh, is, is a raised planter box to, to help people grow food in the city and uh last uh, a year and a half ago i started um, studying um climate change more intensely and that led me to um, global agriculture science. And uh, it was, uh, I've actually listened to a, a talk given by Gwen Dyer. Just really revolutionary, really, what he was talking about food change, or sorry, food supply and um, climate change. And that really tuned me into, uh, I, I mean, I didn't know how to grow food. I hadn't grown any of my own food ever before. And the, the real eye-opener is to know that government, um, you know, around the world, including the United States and, and the United Kingdom, have have plans already in place for um, climate change refugees due to global food shortages. And that kind of scared me a little bit. You need to educate myself about growing food. And uh, that's how Rybox started. Um, I mean, that's, yeah. So the um, the box itself uh, is uh, comes with a number of supplies. It's a physical container, and you supply all the seeds and instructions and everything. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what sort of, uh, sort of thought went into your particular design? What sort of design challenges were you trying to uh, uh, to solve here? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, we were trying to make it easy for people to grow food on balconies in the city. So the problem out there is that um, wooden planter boxes tend to decompose. Um, and there's pots and hanging baskets, which are not hugely efficient for food production. Um, but we started off, uh, yeah, sustainability is huge for, for our product. And so I actually started um, collecting recycled materials at construction sites at downtown Vancouver. And that's how the first rye boxes were built. 
um, we ended up um, going to metal recycling facilities and, and, and using recycled aluminum. And that's when we really identified aluminum as being a, a really crucial building material for um, for the future, but also for, for the Rybot. Um, it is a metal, uh, which is not, or maybe not the greatest for some people, but the good thing about aluminum is that it is really infinitely recyclable. Um, and it is, go- it is going to be a valuable uh, building material for us in the future. So um, the Rybox is 100% recyclable. Um, we're using no um, non-virgin petrochemicals in our product, so no, no virgin plastic. There is a plastic plastic shelf that is, is recycled, um, ABS plastic, and the side panels are made out of glass. So between the aluminum glass and the ABS plastic, it creates a really modern product, which is also incredibly uh, productive as a, as a food producer. Well, I'm afraid, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, uh, Max, but I'm going to make sure that the links to both the uh, the Rybox uh, campaign, which is currently on Indiegogo, and uh, uh, I'm correct in saying that uh, our national audience, uh, people can order these from anywhere in Canada. So we'll have uh, links to the uh, campaign on the page if you're interested in checking out the Rybox. And if you're interested in more information of uh, Max's work uh, in uh, Burnaby, uh, working with uh, some of the issues around the Kinder Morgan pipelines that are being done, all that information will be on the show post. So check out greenmajority.ca for that. Uh, but uh, other than that, thanks so much for your time, Max. Thanks for having me go down. And I love the work you guys are doing. I'm a huge fan, so keep it up. Thanks so much. Uh, so that is our, uh, uh, the, we're done the sort of second part of the show. We're going to go to our final uh, music break here. And then Kevin Farmer and Stefan Hostetter are in the studio. We're going to spend the last few minutes talking about, guess what? Bill C-51. Don't Ooh. go anywhere. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Green Majority. Take a 
Back into our final home stretch here. Neil, tell us what we were listening to. That was uh, former Constantine's uh, lead singer, Briar Webb, and the song was called Fletcher. Oh, thank you very much again for wonderful music choices. Our uh, C- uh, CIUT Green Majority techs are uh, both running the show from behind the scenes there quietly and, uh, and also choosing all of our music. So if you love it, thank them. And if you hate it, don't blame me. <laughs> Stefan, you have a quick comment in our final closing segment here before we uh, unleash Kevin Farmer for the final five minutes. So uh, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. I'm 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 setting it up. So you know, this is volleyball. I'm going to set this one up, and then Kevin's going to going to spike it uh, spike it down. Uh, the uh, so my thing is really just about what uh, which is funny. It's about a, about a month ago uh, in on a, on a YouTube thing we were talking about. We were talking about sort of the difference between the NDP and, and liberals and how the liberals were against Energy East and whether or not that was going to sway our opinion one way or another on them. Uh, and since then, it seems like the liberals have gone out of their way to try to tank uh, my opinion of them. Uh, in, in three specific ways, uh, they, Justin Trudeau came out to say basically that we did not need national ener- uh, carbon pricing strategy, uh, which to, which is wrong. We definitely, definitely do. Uh, <laughs> I, I would go further and say it's tantamount to denying climate change. Yeah, they're well, basically equivalent positions. Well, like his point, yeah, he, it, it's it's the classic. Honestly, it's the classic actually Republican move of we need to let the states decide what we should do about these sort of things. Uh, which is a cop out. It's an absolute cop out. Unless uh, the states want gay marriage, and then right, then then never mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, but so it started there, uh, and then and then and then just this week we have uh, with key, with when, when the when the bill to fast track Keystone XL was was vetoed by Obama, uh, Trudeau had what I think maybe the most tone deaf moment of his you know his, his leadership. Uh, in which he posted a Facebook st- post, in w- basically saying that Canada needs a leader who could work with other governments to get such important infrastructure f- like Keystone XL passed. And I-, I just wanted to throw my head through a wall. If he'd stopped at the fourth word, I would have agreed with him. Yes, Canada exactly. needs a leader. Yeah, done. That'd be very great. Okay. I fully agree. You do. <laughs> now stop talking immediately. Now, now don't finish that sentence yeah. or it'll prove you aren't one. Yeah, you, you have such pretty hair. Just, just, like, <laughs> just, just, just half your pretty hair and, and, and just say we need a leader. Uh, yeah, so, which I, like, to, yeah, I, 
if if something is you know tantamount to dying climate change, saying c- calling Keystone XL such an, like, an important infrastructure project is like we, we're seeing right now what happens what is happening when you invent when when you see Alberta as in in basic Alberta is as the central driving of our of our entire economy, uh, and when as soon as as soon as a price of oil drops, we have nothing. Uh, and so to then claim that right now at this moment when when Alberta in absolutely no way. Uh, is it, no one's expanding the oil sands production because it's not profitable right now? To then call Keystone XL a a important infrastructure project is insane, yeah. uh, and and it's and it's completely ignores the 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 world we live in. Yeah. Uh, and in speaking of the world we live in, uh, the third thing, of course, is is their absolutely baffling support of Bill, Bill C fifty one, which is my perfect segue. Uh, to the to the Hulk, or actually, his, 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 actually, this is this. Here's, here's something. He is wearing famous. green today. He's not only is he wearing green. His his the green that he's actually wearing it says Nature Force on it, <laughs> uh, yeah. which I think is amazing. Uh, so the force of nature himself, Kevin Farmer. <laughs> Kevin, I will lend you my long hair, and you will be the penultimate hippie. <laughs> I used to have hair, <laughs> and it, if I if I ever once live up to this hype, um, <laughs> what is your hype, man? We just we, just, we like every time you say something, we should just go, yeah, <laughs> you go, Kevin. Well, I like the segue because the new climate issue has to be the climate of fear. Nice, and and I hope we're all exercising fulfilling our patriotic duty as Canadians this week to be afraid, be very very afraid. There, there, is, there are tunnels. Oh, and there's not just there's tunnels, but there's a terrorist down every tunnel. Oh, until we discover a rosary and a poppy, and then, oh, it's not news anymore. Nor is it creepy or weird. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so in the climate of fear, uh, as we uh, debate, uh, C- as we pretend to debate Bill C-51, uh, lo and behold, uh, a report surfaces. I found it in the Globe and Mail. I'm sure it's been elsewhere by now. Um, Greenpeace, and sorry about my voice, people, I... I'm as sick as a dog. The dog, the dog sent me a sympathy card. Um, but <laughs> this might be the only way I ever have a good radio voice. Although I always have a great face for radio. Um, so Greenpeace has 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 uh, dug up a report from the RCMP, and I, I just highly recommend that people read this. This is important reading. I'm just going to read a couple of little sentences from uh, of uh, from from this uh, Globe and Mail article. This is this is entirely cribbed from the Globe and Mail. Uh, their article leads off with a quote um, from the RCMP report. There is a growing, highly organized, and well-financed anti-Canadian petroleum movement that consists of peaceful activists, militants, and violent extremists who are opposed to society's reliance on fossil fuels. Uh, a little later, they comment, um, if violent environmental extremists engage in unlawful activity... It jeopardizes the health and safety of its participants, the general public, and the natural environment. Ah, oh, thanks, Mom. We were, we, were, we, were, we were so worried that someone would lose an eye out there protesting. Um, they're, they're not concerned. They're concerned about our own health here <laughs> and, and that of the natural environment. We're putting it at risk, by, at least those of us who are violent extremists, if, if there are any. Um, what else does it go on to say here? Uh, 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 yes. Uh, so, so what they've done. I'm just going to summarize this a little bit here. What they're what they're worried about now is anti-petroleum activists. This is the language being used. Um, we're not the the people they're talking about are not pro-stable climate activists. They're not pro-drinkable water activists. They're not pro. I don't want a uh, pipeline spill in my in my fields or in my aquifer. 
I don't want uh, tankers uh, uh, sinking on my coastline, uh, spill, uh, oil tankers uh, crashing on my coastline. I'm not pro-non-acidic ocean activist. No, I'm an anti-petroleum activist. So, uh, so, so here's the thing. They're, 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 they're couching this language under threats to uh, critical infrastructure in Canada. And the RCMP uh, really ought to be concerned about threats to critical infrastructure in Canada. But they are so woefully out of touch with reality that they have, uh, they've identified the wrong, the wrong infrastructure, the wrong threats, and the wrong extremists. Uh, petroleum is not critical infrastructure. A stable climate is critical infrastructure. If we didn't have alternatives for petroleum, <laughs> if there were no energy alternatives, this might be a different discussion. But we do have energy alternatives. We don't have any alternative to a stable climate. So on the face of it, this argument loses. And the extremism we need to worry about here is that of sacrificing an utterly irreplaceable public good that is a fundamental determinant uh, to the health of our economies, the health of our society, and frankly, the long-term prospects of our species. We're sacrificing this fundamental, irreplaceable public good uh, for the short-term interests of the petroleum industry. Uh, so, Press Progress, uh, this is, and I'm cribbing from them now as well, they put out a really good report called, the, or a really good article on Press Progress called The Nine Weirdest Things About, um, about this particular, this RCMP report. Uh, so they, they comment, too, on this weird language that it's now um, uh, anti, anti-petroleum activists. I mean, what, what is that? Uh, for, they, they note that in the backgrounder, the, the first sentence from the backgrounder is a quote from CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. <laughs> so they're, they're, uh, and, and they needed CAP somehow. They needed to cite CAP somehow uh, to, to explain to them what our actual energy mix is. Uh, the fact that it does at the moment rely on fossil fuels and the fact that it will need to grow to accommodate the energy needs of a growing population. Um, okay, uh, that, that information, of course, could not have been found anywhere, like a high school course. Um, th- there's also this fascinating language in the report that uh, whereby when they refer to the, when, they, when they're characterizing the objections of the, the pro-stable climate, I, I'm sorry, the, the anti-petroleum activists, when they're <laughs> characterizing this, act, the, this uh, uh, um, opposition, they talk about things like that we're worried that um, uh, uh, climate change is, is reportedly linked to fossil fuel emissions. Uh, they cl- and they use words like claim and reportedly, and, and this, as if as if this is not established science and not in fact just borne out by you know essentially at this point over a hundred years of scientific data on this. Uh, so here's the thing: people, as we as we pretend to debate Bill C fifty one, people Canadians should be worried about this, not only because this is dangerous, but because this is alarmingly incompetent. This, you should be offended that this is, this, is a, this, is, this is not just dangerous, but a waste of everyone's tax dollars. At one point, they, they, they quote the blog post of a grad student uh, to, to, make, to make a claim. They use financial data entirely taken from one uh, uh, columnist at the Financial Post. So, I mean, this, this report, I mean, they, they could have done they, This report wouldn't pass muster as a high school project. It, it's, uh, it's 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 not even properly sourced, and it's it's sourced from apologists. They 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 use data from a think tank uh, uh, funded by oil money. Uh, so, 
the, I mean, this this just this just fails. This just fails utterly. These are people who can. These are people who carry guns. These are people who can launch investigations and lay charges. And I don't know if they're just wholly inept, or if they're just just entirely beholden to their political masters, or if this is just some entirely bumbling. Uh, uh, incompetent attempt to hang a fig leaf on a predetermined course of action, but this is in, this is dangerous. It's embarrassing, and in this particular it, that it surfaces at this particular time, I think we should all thank Greenpeace for that for their efforts on this. But uh, I, I, I think we should just be very concerned about the the tone that's being adopted here when you consider the 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 vague overbroad language of Bill C-51 that is, that is broad enough to criminalize any kind of activity now that they consider to be a threat to, you know, critical infrastructure, except, of course, the critical infrastructure of a stable climate. All right, so we're dead out of time, but I just wanted to read something as a word experiment. We're just going to try switching some language out. Protected, environmentalist eyes only. There is a growing and highly organized, well-financed pro-petroleum movement that consists of rich people militants and violent bankers who are opposed to society's reliance on clean air and a breathable world. Just a word experiment. Just seeing what happens. Sounds well, funny when the shoe's on the other our foot. pockets are so deep that the <laughs> petroleum industry can't keep up with us. Anyway, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see everybody next week. 